Is this the moment for gold investors? Is this it? Gold breaks out, silver too. Here on the Northern Miner Podcast, we like to see that. This is our bread and butter, which has not been performing very well. It's looking at Igniko Eagle's stock price. I told my mom, Mom, it was FOMOing at the mouth in 2011 or 12, telling her how she had to buy Igniko Eagle. And it was $72. And I just looked at the stock price and it is $71.81. Oh boy. So that has been, I think she's still holding it too. So yeah. So, you know, don't always listen to your son when it comes to investing, although sometimes you should. So, you know, very interesting times. I mean, and this just goes to show never give up, like, you know, it's not like gold was going to go to a hundred bucks. Like we should all know better, right? Like if gold's down, you it's sort of like the, you have to rebalance your portfolio constantly. And I think this is like, you know, in my personal investing life, this is something that I am really starting to try and do regularly, which is the stuff in my portfolio that goes higher, you sell a little bit. And you buy the stuff that's lower because even though it might seem hated to you, especially on an emotional level, you go, oh, well, that's just going to go down and down because it's already down. That's why you rebalance. And then you just, it takes a little bit of the emotion out of it when you just go buy the red, sell the green. Okay. And somehow, somewhere in there, try and raise some cash. That's the hardest part. I mean, I raised cash last week. Uh, before this crypto crash, and I FOMO'd into the latest, greatest thing uh, just right before it crashed, or, I mean, 10%, whatever, uh, you know, standard operating procedure. But all to say, that money just burns a hole in your pocket when you see the next opportunity, and you really got to stay disciplined there. Anyways, it's a fascinating time in the Canadian gold market. So we want to target that and take a look at it Agnico Eagle has just taken over Kirkland Lake Gold. And what's so interesting about this call was how similar the strategy is between Barrick and Agnico. They both are focusing on exploration. Sean Boyd is saying that it is quote unquote core to Agnico's strategy. And further, he said of Kirkland Lake that they even spent more money on exploration than Agnico. And so they are a good match. So very interesting because you might recall from a previous conference call with Mark Bristow that we heard him say that he wanted to grow the company through exploration and with a particular focus on Canada. So I maintain my pet theory that he has his eye on Agnico. I mean, that could be very complicated and Agnico is starting to become a pretty mature company. But as I said last week, if Mark Bristow has the audacity to try and take over Newmont, surely he has the audacity to try and take over Igneco. Who knows? And maybe we'll find out because tomorrow the Global Mining Symposium begins. And we have as our headline speaker, Mark Bristow of Barrick Gold. So that could be very interesting. I believe Anthony Vicaro, Northern Miner Publisher, will be interviewing him. So that could be very interesting. We also have Rob McEwen of McEwen Mining. 
Candace McGibbon, former CEO of INV Metals, George Ogilvie, president and CEO of Arizona Sonoran Copper Company, and George Salamis, president and CEO of Integra Resources, and he is definitely a favorite here on the show. We're going to have to have him back on. And also many other very talented speakers, Anthony Malowski, I'll be interviewing him, Trent Mell of, of Electra Battery Materials, Siri Cigenic of Bridge, Pierre Graton of the Mining Association of Canada and the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame, Christopher Grove of Commerce Resources, Clint Cox, president of Anchor House, a well-known rare earth expert, Dr. Aaron R. Bobicki, an associate professor of University of Alberta in the Department of Chemical and Material Engineering, and Mark Chalmers, president and CEO of Energy Fuels, and also Kendra Johnson, president and CEO and director of AMEBC. It's an all-star lineup. So do register. It is free at events.northernminer.com. Festivities begin tomorrow. With that, if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at northernminer. You can find us on Instagram at the Northern Miner, and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, we have the latest installment on the BHP Wailu Noront Sega. For those that aren't aware, Noront Resources has what some people are calling the biggest nickel discovery since Voises Bay, which was a major nickel discovery by Robert Friedland. Although it is remote, nevertheless, a major nickel discovery, and BHP and Wailu have been fighting to see who will get it. Wailu is a big shareholder, from what I understand, in Noront Resources, and made the first bid for like $300 million, which seems for such a large discovery in words seems very small. BHP has been bidding them up. And so now we have the latest, and this is by Cecilia Jamazmi, and she has been following this story very closely. And it says here, BHP has extended the deadline for Noron Resources investors to accept or refuse its bid from November 16th to the end of the month as talks with rival Wailu Metals regarding the imminent takeover of the Canadian miner progress. Quote, BHP and Wailu Metals have continued their conversations and are considering a mutually beneficial arrangement regarding the acquisition of Noron by BHP, the world's largest miner, said in a statement. It noted that there is no guarantee at the time that an agreement with Australian billionaire Andrew Forrest Wailu will be reached. BHP last month sweetened its all-cash offer for Noront to $0.75 cents per share, overtaking Wailu's $0.70, cents, which granted it the Toronto-based miners' support. At stake is Noront's early-stage Eagle Nest nickel and copper deposit in the Ring of Fire in northern Ontario. Wailu bills the asset as the largest high-grade nickel discovery in Canada since the Boise's Bay nickel find in the eastern province of Newfoundland and Labrador. Eagle's Nest is expected to begin commercial production in 2026, with the mine running initially for 11 years. Now, I have heard it been spoken... Uh, 
that this thing is never going to get off the ground, but it sounds like Eagle's Nest is expected to begin commercial production in 2026. That sounds like it's going to get off the ground. And this is selling for $400 million? This just doesn't make sense to me, the pricing, but I mean, you know, I'm just coming with not a huge amount of facts, but what I do see, I don't understand. The mine's start date has repeatedly been pushed back by Noront due to the successive federal and provincial government's inability to consult and reach a unanimous agreement with First Nations in the area. So that is the latest on that yet to resolve itself. Sounds like they are considering a, quote, mutually beneficial agreement. The drama continues. Continuing on, Greenland Minerals drops as uranium ban leaves project in limbo. This is also by Cecilia Jamazmi, and a very interesting move by Greenland's parliament to ban uranium mining. Shares in Greenland Minerals fell almost 30% on November 12th to 8.8 Australian cents as the company resumed shares trading following Greenland government's decision earlier this week to ban uranium mining and exploration. The Parliament's decision around production of the radioactive metal effectively blocked the development of the company's vast Kavanyafeld Rare Earths project, one of the world's biggest, which would produce uranium as a byproduct. Greenland Minerals has previously said that while uranium was not of great economic significance to its project, revenues generated by the metal and other byproducts would help offset rare earth production costs. You know, this is just like a classic example of the West kind of shooting itself in the foot. Because probably the parliamentarians, and I don't have any details on this story, so I am purely speculating, but they're probably thinking of the environmental situation, uh, but they're not thinking of the military situation and that the West really needs to ramp up its rare earth production. And Greenland, I mean, I think that's why Donald Trump was saying he wanted to buy Greenland. They needed the rare earths. So... It'd be helpful. I mean, we're in democracies where everybody, I guess, is allowed to disagree with each other. But it'd be helpful if we could get on the same page on this stuff, because we can't have half the society, you know, trying to shut down the rare earths projects and the other half saying we need this to protect ourselves. Anyways, so continuing on, the company told shareholders on Friday that the company was now seeking advice on how the new legislation would impact the proposed development strategy for Kavanyafeld. It noted the ban would hamper exploration and production of key critical metals, including rare earths, which the world needs to switch to a greener economy and reduce carbon emissions. Quote, there are no active primary uranium projects in Greenland. Therefore, the legislation is directed at the production of rare earth materials and other critical metals, where it is common for ores to contain radioactive elements, including uranium and thorium. And this is according to the company in a statement. The new law bans exploration of deposits with a uranium concentration higher than 100 parts per million, which is considered very low grade by the World Nuclear Association. Quote, the company is not aware of any technical, radiological, or health and safety reasons why the Greenland government has selected a threshold of 100 ppm uranium for the legislation. So, not easy to be a miner in Greenland right now. And more labor issues in Latin America. Pan American Silver cuts guidance on labor shortages, higher costs. And this is also by Cecilia Jamazmi. Pan American Silver has lowered its silver and gold production targets for the second time this year as costs related to ventilation upgrades at its La Colorada mine in Mexico and labor shortages weighed on profits in the September quarter. Now, we just interviewed... Robert Enid last week, and 
what's interesting about that interview is he was saying how they had good access to labor and he had two projects in Mexico. So interesting, Pan American, not so lucky. The company came out with quarterly earnings of 18 cents per share, missing investors' estimates of 35 cents per share. This compares to earnings of 34 cents per share a year ago. What's interesting is I'm sure the workers are out there. It's just a matter of are you paying them enough to show up at your mine rather than someone else's? The Latin American-focused miner said it produces 4.83 million ounces of silver in the three months ended September 30th, 18% more than what it turned out in the same period last year but 11% below consensus analyst expectations. Pan American now expects to produce between 19 and 20 million ounces of silver in 2021, down from a previous estimate of 20.5 to 22 million ounces. It's about 10% lower than expectations. It also increased full year all-in sustaining cost guidance for silver to between 15.75 and 16.75, up from 14.25 to $15.75 per ounce. So it's pretty expensive. to $16.75 per ounce in costs. The Vancouver-based miner attributed the rise in costs to higher mining costs at La Colorada, its largest silver mine, including ventilation upgrades, extensive Shot Creek ground support, and investments in long-haul mining methods to benefit future operations. The company noted that the mine's costs are expected to gradually decline as throughput increases over the coming quarters. Company also reported Robert Doyle, chief financial officer, will retire by the end of March. So Pan American facing some labor issues and cost issues. I guess that's not shocking in this environment. And turning to our next story, Saskatchewan adds lithium to mining portfolio. Also by Cecilia Jamazmi. I was looking. She almost had a clean sweep of all the stories here, but the last one will be by Marilyn Scales. Just so everybody knows, I just look at the titles and I'd go with what I think will be the most general, accessible, and you know, exciting for the podcast for the general listener. So uh, just so everybody knows, I am not looking at the writers. So congrats to Cecilia Jamazmi, almost a sweep. If we ever get a sweep, we'll have to give her an award or whoever else that might be. Anyways, Prairie Lithium a private lithium resource and technology developer situated in the heart of Saskatchewan's resource-rich Williston Basin, reached a milestone this week as it finished drilling the province's first dedicated lithium well, which could make the battery metal the region's third largest resource offering after potash and uranium. The Canadian Junior has been using proprietary technology to extract the sought-after battery metal from subsurface brine water since 2020, when the company's first extraction tests began. The salty underground water is then mixed with an ion exchange material in a tank and is eventually converted into lithium chloride. Provincial Energy and Resources Minister Brownwin Iyer said lithium is, quote, having a moment, end quote, right now and demand is expected to increase fivefold by 2030. Ayer said the process is cleaner than the traditional way of extracting the mineral from hard rock and creates a sustainable use for the oil wells. Saskatchewan's growth plan supports the development of lithium exploration and extraction technologies, providing funding programs like the Saskatchewan Petroleum Innovation Initiative and Saskatchewan Advantage Innovation Fund, both used by Prairie Lithium. Now, I'm totally in favor of this government help here. Uh, And, you know, I come as like, I work half time as an artist and I've never applied for public funding in my life. So I don't come as some huge, you know, let the government take care of everything kind of guy. In fact, I'm kind of the opposite, but I am a pragmatist 
And I think this whole idea that you just leave things to the market and to investors, and then we end up with no rare earths when China is subsidizing their, their rare earth and lithium industries, I think we need to get pragmatic here and say, forget ideology. And at a certain point, we have to go with what works. Saskatchewan's growth bond, like we've actually seen repeated examples now of the government coming in, helping this mineral industry out. And I'm all for that. If you disagree, leave a comment. And so that is another interesting story. And finally, first Cobalt, who also was helped by the federal government and the Ontario government, they are going to expand their Ontario refinery and widen their focus. And they plan to change their name to Electra Battery Materials. So I guess they want to expand from the Cobalt niche into, quote, battery materials. This is by Marilyn Scales. And it says here, first, Cobalt wants to increase the design capacity of its hydrometallurgical cobalt refinery in Cobalt, Ontario, to 6,500 tons of cobalt annually from 5,000 tons. The decision was due to a strong demand for battery-grade cobalt and client feedback. And we have seen that in the cobalt price, which has been rising. The company has also announced a name change to Electra Battery Materials pending shareholder approval, reflecting its plan to deliver nickel sulfate to the battery market and to recycle lithium-ion batteries in addition to producing cobalt. To reach the targeted cobalt refinery capacity, the company will invest in additional capacity for the crystallizer circuit. The extra equipment will raise the capital budget to $67 million from $60 million. Groundwork has begun on the new solvent extraction facility, and contracts have been awarded for the foundations and building construction. First Cobalt says construction remains on schedule for commissioning in the fourth quarter of 2022. The refinery expansion is part of the company's four-phase strategy to create a battery materials park in the region. The completion of the refinery will mark the end of the first phase. So look at this. I don't know. Maybe they would have solved this without. I think they got about $5 million provincially and $5 million federally. But look at what they're doing. I mean, we can't deny that they are doing well. Let's see if it continues. And finally, the second phase involves the recycling of material from the anode and cathode of batteries to recover lithium, nickel, cobalt, copper, and graphite. A scoping study is nearing completion on how to accomplish this using the existing equipment in the plant from historic operations. In phase three, First Cobalt plans to build a modular nickel sulfate plant with an initial capacity of 60,000 tons of nickel. A study is underway to evaluate the opportunities for such a plant in North America. And finally, the fourth phase involves building a battery precursor materials plant in 2025, likely with a joint venture partner, says Electra. Locating this plant near regional nickel and cobalt sulfate production could be a major savings in the battery value chain. So very impressive stuff from first cobalt, soon to be Electra battery materials. It's going to be very interesting to watch, but I'd say a success story from a government policy point of view, in I think they had zero percent loans, and one the I'm not sure if the federal government just gave a zero percent loan on the five million bucks, and I believe the provincial government gave a five million dollar loan that basically didn't need to be paid back, if memory serves. Anyways, those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, the 10-year bond is at 1.601%. That is 0.15% higher 
So bouncing back above 1.6%. I mean, we got that big inflation read in October of 6%. So I guess we shouldn't be overly surprised by a slight bump in the 10-year. Very interesting to watch as ever. And as far as metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And gold is trading at $1,864.53 per ounce. That is $39 higher than last week. Silver is trading at $25.30 per ounce. That is $0.85 higher than last week. Platinum is trading at $1,085.86 per ounce. That is $26 higher than last week. And palladium is trading at $2,110 per ounce. And that is $12 higher than last week. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $4.47 per pound. That is $0.05 cents higher. Aluminum is trading $0.07 cents higher at $1.20 per pound. Lead is trading at $1.08 per pound. That is a penny lower than last week. Nickel is at $9 even. That is $0.26 cents higher than last week. Tin is at $17.76 per pound. That is $0.34 cents higher than last week. Cobalt is at $26.85 per pound. That is a penny lower than last week. And zinc is at $1.50 per pound. That is $0.04 cents higher than last week. So what do we see? I think we could call it a breakout in the precious metals, particularly gold and silver. Platinum and palladium edge higher while industrial metals maintain their elevated prices. Zinc at $1.50, nickel at $9, aluminum at $1.20, copper at $4.47. So not transitory yet. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Sean Boyd, potentially his last conference call as CEO of Agnico Eagle. I believe he is going to be chairman after the merger with Kirkland Lake Gold and that Tony McCooch will become the new CEO. So if that's all accurate, this may be Sean Boyd's final conference call as CEO. He is vice chair and CEO of Agnico Eagle as it stands. And again, very interesting, as we discussed in the introduction, a focus on exploration, discussion on the synergies, as they like to call them, with Kirkland Lake Gold and the latest updates on what's becoming a very impressive operation at Agnico Eagle Mines and soon to be a lot bigger of a company. With that, I hope you enjoy it and I will see you on the other side. everyone and thank you for joining us for our third quarter 2021 conference call. Uh, just to take note of the fact that this presentation will include uh, certain forward-looking statements. Uh, just like to start off with a, a summary and a bit of an overview, a very strong quarter uh, from a production perspective, a cost perspective, from a cash generation perspective as well. We had record uh, quarterly production uh, as expected um, in the third quarter, uh, producing over 520,000 ounces, um, excluding uh, production from the Hope Bay mine. Uh, there was a big part of this um, uh, performance was really driven by the performance of our Abitibi mines and our Meliadine mine. If you look at the Abitibi platform, uh, Goldex, Canadian Malartic, and Laurent, 
those three mines collectively produced in the quarter 222,000 ounces of gold, uh, total cash cost below $600 an ounce. If you look at Melidine, we'll get into that in a minute, had a record a quarter from a production standpoint, producing about 97,000 ounces of gold at total cash cost of 634. So really strong performance from that base, uh, producing uh, almost two thirds of the production ounces uh, for the company in the quarter. As a result of the strong production uh, and cost performance in the quarter, we've maintained our 2021 guidance. We did provide commentary um, in the press release on cost inflation. As we said in the press release, we're seeing uh, cost inflation on consumables and supplies in the order of about 5 to 7% uh, going into next year. Um, that's uh, roughly half of our cost structure. Uh, the other half would be largely labour. Um, and our labor uh, expected increase would be less than that that we're seeing in our consumables and our reagents. So we're not seeing any abnormal pressure on, on the wage side. And uh, we thought it was important to give you our sense. We did update you last quarter, um, and we wanted to give you what we're seeing um, in the current uh, environment. Also um, of note, as you know, um, on September the 28th, a month ago, uh, both Agnico and Kirkland Lake announced a merger of equals that would combine and create the best-in-class gold company uh, operating in pro-mining jurisdictions, um, unlocking significant synergies. So this is really a transaction to unlock value amounting to about $2 billion over, over 10 years. Uh, this is basically done to take advantage of uh, what is really a regional consolidation opportunity, uh, which drives a lot of those synergies. And as we've said before, when you look at uh, from Detour down to Kirkland Lake, across to Valdor, that relatively small geographical footprint, the combined company will produce annually almost 2 million ounces of gold with a combined reserve and resource of almost 70 million ounces. If you look at the combined Canadian production uh, from this company, as we've said before, over two and a half million ounces with the potential to get to about three million ounces. So this is the major building block of this um, company going forward, not only unlocking value through synergies, but creating the highest quality platform for creating additional value going forward. Um, we continue to work with our partners at Kirkland Lake Gold, continue to discuss and plan uh, for a successful integration of the two businesses, making good progress. We've been asked, you know, about uh, the combination of these two businesses. Well, as we've said uh, in the past and said on September the 28th, I think the magic of this uh, combination is the fact that we're taking two high-quality businesses, one with nine mines, one with three mines, um, and Kirkland's two of their three mines are on the same rough geological belt as our business uh, in Quebec, and we do have development projects in Ontario. So from an integration standpoint, from a manageability standpoint, from a cultural standpoint, um, uh, these line up uh, extremely well, and we're highly confident that we'll have a successful integration uh, of these two uh, high-quality businesses. A big part of our story um, has been the exploration success over our long history, but more recently, over the last year or so, we're seeing 
significant exploration results at many of our largest uh, cash flow generators and our largest producers, including at three of our largest gold mines. Um, and we'll talk about that as well. As we, you've heard us say before, this is the largest exploration budget in the history of Ignico, around $160 million. And I think it's important to note that Kirkland Lake Gold actually spends more than we do. And so when you think about that combination again, it will be a company that actually has the best upside potential in terms of adding value through the drill bit. And that will be a core part of the strategy, given that it's been a core part of the strategy and a big part of the success of both companies individually over the last couple of years. We'll have a more detailed update of the exploration story of Ignico on November the 2nd. And so we're still compiling uh, that information around this, but some of the highlights were included um, in our press release. Uh, LaRonde uh, continues to be a major focus for exploration, even after being in production for over 30 years, because uh, we do have a lot of undrilled uh, ground to the west of LaRonde on the old Barrick Bousquet property. Uh, that's re going to require access to drill, so we're extending three exploration drifts um, into the uh, LZ5 property, the former Bousquet property. That will be a big part of the exploration story over the next two to three years. And we also continue to see um, a good promise to the east of the mine. And we put in a recent drill hole that was encountered on the 20 North Zinc South Zone. And the NSRs of these uh, intersections are several hundreds of dollars. So highly valued rock. Uh, in the lower part of the mine, which is not inconsistent with what we've seen over the 30-year history of this mine, where we've seen polymetallic zones that run uh, high NSR values. So we're going to also, as well as the focus on the west part of Laronde, also focus on the east part of Laronde. At Meliadine, uh, we continue to uh, drill that deposit as we go deeper, continue to encounter higher grade over meaningful widths, uh, which is important, and again, reinforcing um, the concept that we first understood very early on as we were looking at this opportunity, and after we bought it doing a bulk sample, we found that that bulk sample returned more gold than was indicated in the block model. So uh, we continue to see um, a lot of visible gold in the drill holes, uh, suggesting that this deposit not only continues um, and gets bigger, it's also uh, retaining uh, its high-quality nature in terms of grade. And we'll get to it in a minute, and you can see that that translates into higher production and very good cash generation coming out of Meliadine. At Amarouk, as you know, that's a focus for us. Um, in the region of the Amarouk deposit, we continue to drill uh, largely to the west. We're drilling also between whale tail and IVR, but of note, um, in the quarter was in the Mammoth area. That's about 600 meters west of the whale tail pit. Uh, we're encountering good thicknesses, uh, decent grades uh, within 250 meters of surface. So it's early, but potentially significant. Uh, and that'll be a focus as we move into next year to continue to follow up um, our drilling in that area because that's what we're looking for, near surface mineralization, uh, close to our existing infrastructure. The Odyssey project uh, continues to have tremendous potential. We continue to get 
as we drill the core of East Goldie, as Guy Goslin has said many times, it's very consistent, very tabular, uh, almost like Laron. When you drill a hole within the envelope or within the outline, you're hitting gold, very consistent. And uh, the excitement is really what do we see as we move to the east in that favorable geological pattern. And uh, what we've seen as we've drilled in between that wide step out that we talked about uh, over the last few months is we continue to see the potential to maybe add additional zones in that gap. Again, early, but it's a real focus for exploration um, at uh, Canadian Malartic. And Upper Beaver, uh, we're seeing the potential to add additional mineralization as we drill deeper. High gold grades, very good copper grades over very good thicknesses uh, in a potential uh, new zone. Um, so we're focused on that. Uh, as we move forward, and that will be an important part of extracting additional value out of the combination of Igneco and Kirkland uh, because of the proximity of Upper Beaver to Kirkland's Macassa mine. And in addition to that, we've got a sizable resource right on the boundary in the AK zone, which is easily accessible with a tunnel uh, drift uh, from the Macassa operation. So we'll be able to provide more clarity on that as we uh, move through uh, the next couple of months. On ESG, we continue to rank very high in ESG ratings. It's a, a focus for us. It will be a focus in the combined company as we put those two businesses together. We see lots of opportunities, particularly in communities, particularly on renewable energy in the combined company, so that will be an important focus. The highlights in the quarter was really the reintegration of the Nunavumiat workforce in Nunavut, both at Meliadine and Meadowbank. Uh, we've been able to do that successfully. We're happy to have them back. We missed them while they were away, um, and, and that's an important step um, in building the business and building the platform uh, in Nunavut. On climate change, um, we announced uh, recently our commitment to net zero by 2050 and also recently uh, committed to implement the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure. We talked about that at our Health and Safety Committee yesterday and at the board level. Um, so that's a primary focus. And our Mexican mines continue to win awards in, in terms of safety and corporate and social responsibility. So that was a big highlight in the quarter. Um, I'll spend a little time on the next page, uh, mostly just to go down some of our assets and talk about some of the highlights. And I'll just use this page as a bit of a guide and a reference before getting into the individual mines. Um, just want to highlight the, the strong operating margin uh, in the quarter uh, coming off of that record production and really looking at, particularly from the big three mines, looking at La Ronde uh, continues to be our biggest cash flow generator, almost $150 million of operating margin in the quarter, Canadian Malartic at $93 million, and Meliadine. Uh, sort of entering into that group of the big three mines with record of production, but also strong cash flow generation at 85 million. So that cash flow is a significant part of our overall cash uh, margin uh, in the quarter of over 500 million. Just starting uh, with La Ronde, uh, a very strong quarter. Uh, we had very good grades in the West uh, mine. We set a new quarterly tonnage record at LZ5, which is important in terms of continuing to optimize uh, that asset. A lot of that productivity comes from using automated equipment, where we continue to be well advanced there with uh, Sandvik. And Sandvik will acknowledge that Laurent's one of the mines uh, that they deal with, which is further ahead than most mines in terms of 
integrating and utilizing uh, automated equipment. Our board was just at site this week at Goldex, at Canadian Malartic, at La Ronde, and we're able to see uh, some of that automation uh, in progress. Um, continue to focus on exploration, as we said, um, as we move to the west. And really what we're looking at is, um, as part of the full potential exercise here, uh, Laron's uh, strong production uh, we think will be bolstered uh, going forward in an ability to extend the mine life as we drill out both the western and eastern side uh, of that deposit and that trend. Uh, so good performance there at Laurent. At Canadian Malarctic, um, again, record quarterly tonnage mined and record quarterly tonnage milled uh, in the quarter, resulting in strong uh, gold production and very good uh, cash generation. The focus continues to be on optimizing the Odyssey project. We got to see the new concrete head frame. I think it's, it's completed in terms of the form. It's up about 97 meters, so an extremely uh, big head frame uh, to match the big underground opportunity that exists there. Um, and you need the big head frame if this is going to become, which it is, the largest underground gold mine in the country, in Canada, uh, as we build it out. But as we said, the focus is um, we're on target in terms of development there, uh, on budget in terms of development, but the focus um, is also on exploration and how big is that structure and how do we integrate that into the mine plan and improving the economics of that project, which we believe we can continue to do as we look to optimize that project. Uh, Kitala, quarterly record in terms of mill feed and quarterly record gold production. So a lot of records in the quarter, which is, I think is a testament to the ability now, once we've expanded some of these mines, now to focus on optimizing the assets. And Kitala is certainly one of those, although we're already working on the next phase of expansion at that mine. Uh, continue to get good drill results there. As we drill deeper, that deposit uh, continues at depth, uh, continues to be wide open. It's already a very large mine in terms of mine life. Um, and again, another optimization opportunity and expansion opportunity there. At Meadowbank, uh, good production coming out of the Amaruk deposit, uh, 90,000 ounces. Uh, in September was over 30,000 ounces in September, 34,000 ounces. The focus now is really on optimization, really on cost reduction as we go forward. Um, we need to get the cost down. We have a definite plan in terms of optimizing that asset as we move forward. Uh, but the key for us is to get the tonnage, uh, get the long-haul truck performance, which we've been getting. Um, that's allowed us to process um, good tonnage, which has resulted in good production uh, going forward. So there's still work to do there. Um, our, our goal is, is to make it as high a quality mine as we have at Meliadine. We, it shows you that can be done in Nunavut. Um, but as we move into the fourth quarter, we did have a one-week shutdown um, in uh, early October, and that was really to do some tie-in work in the mill as we um, add um, a new circuit um, there to improve uh, the, the, the recoveries in that plant. Um, so with that one-week shutdown, uh, we'll have lower production uh, in the fourth quarter at uh, Meadowbank. And Meliadine, I'll just uh, finish with Meliadine on this page, as we said, a record quarterly production of 97,000 ounces, hitting commercial production at the Tiraganiac open pit in August. Uh, we're progressing on our phase two expansion, which is important to continue to optimize this asset. Uh, we know from exploration that this asset will continue to grow. 
um, had a successful sea lift. Uh, we discharged the saline water to um, the sea, almost all completed um, at this point. And the NERB has reviewed the permit application. The NERB recommendation for the waterline project was positive, and we're just uh, waiting for the approval uh, from the federal government um, as they review the, the NERB report. We expect to receive that before the end of, of this year. So just uh, uh, wrapping up here before we open it up for questions, just on financial highlights, uh, normalized earnings of 60 cents, uh, work, uh, operating cash flow before working capital, a very strong result at $1.69. Again, that's driven by the record production, um, strong cash position, uh, but we should note, um, post the merger announcement with Kirkland Lake, all of our rating agencies uh, put Agnico Eagle on a positive ratings watch. Uh, so that's a positive sign uh, on the merger uh, from the rating agencies. So just in conclusion, a good strong quarter, uh, record production, very good cash generation, lots of good exploration results that we'll be able to uh, spend more time on. Uh, next week with a more fulsome release and a, another call to have Guy and his team uh, go through them um, uh, with those that are interested. Um, and uh, we're all focused now on, on getting to the vote November 26th. So uh, we ask those shareholders of both Kirkland and Nico to get out and, and vote for the merger. We're excited about it. Uh, we look forward to the combined platform and working with our partners at Kirkland Lake to uh, continue to deliver uh, the type of value that both companies have delivered individually uh, to do it together in a lower risk, uh, higher quality platform. So thanks for your attention on that and uh, we'll be happy to take uh, questions operator. So it was interesting to hear that. It's almost as if Sean Boyd was semi-apologetic about having to merge with Kirkland Lake Gold as if it was not something that he had previously said they would do. Again, he called it a regional consolidation opportunity. It's almost like they weren't looking for it, but with it sitting right there and the opportunity in front of them, they couldn't say no. At least that's how we read it here at the Northern Miner Podcast. Thank you once again for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Global Mining Symposium starting tomorrow at events.northernminer.com. An all-star lineup. We look forward to seeing you there. Until next week, take care. <laughs>